0: Welcome to combo chain it's a jrpg games club podcast i'm paul m davis and who am i here with today
1: hi my name's robert welcome back robert hey, uh thank you for having
0: me yeah yeah it's good to have you back uh, today we're going to be doing tales of the abyss which was a uh, playstation 2 game from the long running Tales series, later came to uh, the 3DS. What's your like history with the game?
1: Yeah, when this game came out, I got it and I played it through like co op with friends. But I was already a big Tales fan at that point, ever since I played Tales of Fantasia with that really terrible translation patch on the SNES where they put a lot of sex words in it. Oh, man. Which only increased the allure for teenage me because, like, oh, my God. <laughs> that don't come here from Japan are amazing. <laughs>
0: yeah, that was really a thing around the time. Like, weird, way too horny fan translations <laughs> and stuff. I think there's still a thing, but, you know.
1: Someone has to keep the, the dream alive.
0: Oh, yeah. So, yeah, you, you picked it up on the PS2. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I have not played the 3DS port.
0: That's how I played it. And from all the side-by-side comparisons, it was a pretty remarkably close port. Visually, like all, uh, visually, it was pretty close. Voice acting was all in there. It was pretty impressive what they yeah, uh, for the three crammed into two, a cartridge.
1: To... Yeah, and they made the load times way better. I know on PS2, it took a minute to save, and everything just it was very slow. There's a comparison video out there of just how much of a difference it makes, but I have to say, it looks to me like the 3DS version is the one you would prefer to play.
0: Yeah, from what I've read online, that seems to be the uh, consensus. You know, there was not really that many like quality of life improvements or anything. It was just pretty much a port, but just for reasons like load times and whatnot, it's considered the preferred version. I don't know. The 3DS is an interesting system. Like, It feels like halfway between an N64 and a PS2 or something. Yeah, yeah
1: I guess that's... I can mean, see that.
0: So, yeah, it can do a pretty credible port of a, a PS2 game. But, yeah, I really liked it. I think it was one of the first Tales games that I played, actually.
1: Oh, yeah. That's cool, yeah. Because it's probably my favorite one, which is not necessarily like an objective measure, but I think it stands out a bit still in terms of the story. And it's made some nice improvements from Symphonia's battle system. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I found going back to Symphonia, I can see why it was so like influential, but having played it after playing more modern Tales games, it's, it's a pretty rough road to trod.
1: For sure, because it was 3D, but they hadn't invented the idea of you actually being able to take advantage of the 3D yet.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah, let's go into the backstory on the game. So as I said, it was originally released for the PlayStation 2 in Japan in late 2005 and in the West in late 2006. Then the port was re-released on the 3DS in 2011. Its development team included director Yoshido Higuchi, producer Makoto Yoshizumi, and character artist Fujishima. The game features music by series composers uh, Matoe Sakuraba and Shinji Tamura. And uh, I think one of the things that's really interesting about the game, and you can definitely see it in the battle system, is that uh, Gucci's background uh, in game dev wasn't JRPGs. It was actually fighting games. And I came across a pretty interesting quote from him in an interview where it says, I was a director on Tales of Symphonia before Abyss, but before that, I was in the group that developed Soul Calibur and the Tekken series, handling the gameplay balance and features on the console ports. There are several internal help wanted ads for these sort of titles we were working on, and I chose the Tales Studio because I wanted to try out a genre that I had no experience working on. I was the sort of person who never wanted to work on the same series after finishing up a game. I liked being able to make my own choices. And I think that really reflects how the battle system is almost in certain ways like combo-based and very... It's very reminiscent of the fighting game like within a JRPG context.
1: Yeah, and if you uh, play like... The earlier games, they were a little less combo-based and a little more like you run up, hit a guy once, go back, even though they were still uh, action-based. And you can definitely see that's the same series. But I, I do like how his influence there and how the way that developed with Symphonia went for the rest of the series.
0: Yeah, it became a lot more dynamic. Tales of the Abyss has music as a major theme through which several elements of the game have been named and are styled after. And another major motif derives from the Sephiroth of Jewish tradition, which leads to many settlement names coming from terms from the Kabbalah, like many JRPGs. It really likes to pull from its Kabbalistic lore.
1: Oh, yeah. Your, the word Sephiroth does appear in this game.
0: <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, I was actually just rewatching the intro of Genesis Evangelion the other day. Oh, and, yeah. And, uh, I was like, oh, wow, like the tree of life is like right there at the game. <laughs> anyway, I just stuck out. It's definitely <laughs> yep. an obsession among Japanese culture creators. So, yeah, do you want to talk about the uh, mechanics?
1: Yeah, sure. All right. As we've been alluding to, and you know, if you've played any other game in this series, the game's battle system is in real time. And it controls a lot like Tales of Symphonia, but you have more maneuverability mostly coming from the free run button that you can hold down to actually just move wherever you want on the battlefield instead of being stuck on a straight line with you and whatever enemy you're targeting. You've got an attack button, you've got a block button, you've got various skills you can set and form with a combination of a directional direction on the stick and the skill button. And you can also call up your menu to use items or just command an ally to do a specific ability. Otherwise they'll do things on their own. And uh, so, like I was saying earlier, you can play this whole game co-op, which is not like a regular co-op game. You have to be a group that is fine with one person on the map doing everything and a lot of story sequences. But compared to Symphonia, the co-op mode is way better in this one because the camera is fixed. But before, it would only focus on player one. So player one had to be a spellcaster and then you had to hope it worked out. But in mm. this one, it will actually try to keep everyone in the camera. Uh, characters can also learn AD skills that you can equip and unequip whenever you want to help them out. And you get them... use these things called capacity cores, which are items that also give you a stat bonus when the character levels up. So you have a limited degree of customization, not a huge amount. It's still a JRPG style uh, character building. But once a certain statistic has a large enough bonus, then you'll automatically learn the appropriate AD skill. Another new system in Abyss is the field of phonons, or FOF, which works like whenever someone uses an elementally aligned spell or skill, it'll put a little circle on the ground that corresponds to that element. So if you stack a few same element skills in one place, you'll eventually activate the FOF. And once it's fully powered up, skills that you use inside it will get stronger or gain that elemental attribute and you'll gain whole new abilities from it. Enemies can use them just as much as you can, so that's not like that. Could be a really major part of the battle system. It's not that important. You can just do whatever, but it is a neat idea that sort of encourages you to use that 3D space.
0: Yeah, it is a neat idea. Every Tales game I play, I go through all the tutorials and learn what the new kind of gimmick it to the fighting is. And at some point, <laughs> I just resort to like button mashing.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's almost like a JRPG thing a lot of the times. Once you get strong enough, you're not worrying as much about regular fights. Yeah. As with uh, Tales of Symphonia and other future Tales games, you have the overlimit mode that you can engage when the overlimit bar is full. And it raises when you complete combos, make critical hits. And when you're in over-limit mode, you are stronger and can't be staggered as much, I think. But also you can use your mystic arts, which are like your big, most powerful super attacks that come mm-hmm. with a cutscene and everything. So every character's got one of those, but also an extra one you can get on repeat plays. And some of the bosses have them uh, as well. Usually like the big storyline bosses will just sometimes interrupt you with a cutscene and absolutely wreck your entire party.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Yeah, let's uh, talk about the characters of the game. It's got a big cast, like many Tales games do. And uh, one of my favorites, I think. You start out with the main protagonist, which is uh, Luke Von Farb. He's an am- amnesiac aristocrat who is confined to his family's manor following a kidnapping seven years ago. There's Tyr Grants, a seventh phonist who re- promises to return Luke to his manor after he accidentally transports him into Malkuth territory. There's Jade Curtis, a cor- a Colonel in the Malkuth empire's military, who travels the land in a dreadnought called the Tartarus. Anise Tatlin, a phone master guardian whose family was once stricken by massive debt due to the wanton actions of her gullible father and her trusting mother. There's Guy Cecil who's a childhood friend and a servant of the Farb household. He basically departs in search of Luke following his accidental teleportation. And then there's... uh, (laughs) This is going to be tough to say. Natalia Luzu Kimlaska (laughs) Lanvaldare. I'm not (laughs) even going to try that. I'm (laughs) not (laughs) even going to try that again. She's the bow-wielding princess of the kingdom of Kimlaska. She's engaged to Luke, and the two are meant to be wed once he reaches the age of 20. But uh, Luke's not too excited about the idea, and he's often pretty rude to her. Then you have Ion, who's uh, the young leader of the Order of Lorelei. He appears to be a sickly boy who is capable of unleashing immense power in short bursts, after which he's often shown to be completely drained.
1: Yeah, I really like this cast too. In terms of gameplay, they're all the usual archetypes you would expect if you've played these games. But they, mm. they don't always get along. But then sometimes they get along pretty well. I think both of those things are the things I liked about it. That Jade is an asshole. Yeah, yeah. and
0: uh, Luke is an asshole for. Yeah, there's of like the
1: game. a realistic sort of conflict between them sometimes. Mm-hmm. But then I just remember after there's a time skip in the story and. When you meet Jade again, I distinctly remember him being like friendly. Oh, hey, hi, guys. And I think I just like that. I like that they are realistically friends, but also don't. Also, they're together for a reason. So they don't always get along.
0: Yeah, yeah. Luke
1: is just being dragged around for the first part of the game because Mm -hmm. no one likes him. (laughs) It's
0: an interesting game because, as far as I would say, the first few hours are tough to get through. But you start with an unlikable protagonist, (laughs) a story that's confusing, and it just takes a little while to get going. So, yeah, it's a bold move from a storytelling perspective.
1: Yeah, Luke changes more through the story than, like, your average JRPG protagonist who goes from, I don't know, a good guy to a gooder guy or whatever. Yeah. A lot of the time that's pretty flat, but I think Luke actually is one of the most dynamic JRPG characters I've ever seen.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. All right, so we will to talk about the uh, antagonists?
1: Yeah, so most of the antagonists in the game are these guys, the six god generals who serve the Order of Lorelai. So, you know, your standard thing, you've got a specifically numbered group of enemies for you to fight. First one, you got Arietta the Wild. She is a little girl who was orphaned at a young age and adopted by a family of Ligers. Which are <laughs> I think not like real world laggers, but you got you, can, you get an idea what that is. That'd be that's, real
0: cool if it was if they were. Yeah,
1: <laughs> but I like how like the first boss in the game is you just killing her adopted mom, and whereas normally that boss would just be okay, here's an enemy for you to fight, it comes up in the story afterwards. Right, she's mad at you for that for a pretty good reason. You've got Largo the Black Lion. Uh, he's a really big dude, really strong, heavy armor. He has a scythe, so. Generally a cool dude. Dist the Reaper. He's He should have the Scythe. He's called the Reaper. But anyway, he actually is the smart one who uses machines to fight. He's a phone tech expert. you have got LaGretta the Quick. He's the sharpshooter, and she's got two guns, which would normally make her way better than everyone else. And uh, Tyr trained underneath her, so she admires LaGretta. We've got some good drama there. You got Sink the Tempest, a martial artist who has a distinctive mask to cover his face so people don't realize he's a replica of Ion. And Ash the Bloody is a mysterious god general who looks exactly like Luke. As you can Hmm, see.
0: I wonder how that will play out.
1: Yep. But the last person who actually isn't one of the generals is Von Grantz, the Commandant of the Oracle Knights, and he's Luke's mentor but he also plans to destroy the whole world along with its inhabitants and make a replica of it.
0: Yeah, moving on to just talking about the basic setting of the story. Tales of the Abyss takes place on uh, Alderant, a planet composed of elementary particles called phonons. For most of uh, its history, only six phonons were known to exist, representing the elements of shadow, earth, wind, water, fire, and light. However, a 7th phonon, sound, is a recent discovery. This discovery brings great chaos to the world because using the 7th phonon allows you to read the future. And uh, there's one 7th phonist, Yulia Ju, who puts in place a future for the world for thousands of years to come with the uh, promise of uh, unlimited prosperity at its end. <clears throat> This prophecy of the future's set path becomes known as a score and is uh, documented on phone stones uh, <laughs> scattered throughout the world.
1: The nations of Kimlaska, Lanvoldir, and, La- and Malkuth have fought over the fragments of these tablets for generations. Each one uncovers them, and they're trying to discover the future before the other one can. So, Meanwhile, a holy order emerges dedicated to the reading of the score and the keeping of the peace. It's called the Order of Lorelai, and it's headed by a phone master, maintaining religious, political, and military branches. Finally, the score and its promise of prosperity lead to a dangerous complacency within the general population of Aldrant, even up to the point where there is a massacre of all the people living on an island called Hod and the total destruction of the landmasts, and everyone more or less puts up with that because it was predicted in the score.
0: Yeah, they're they're pretty much just living out the worst-case scenario of being able to uh, see your future and that whole thought experiment where it's, would you change anything? Do you have any free will? They've pretty much decided they don't. <laughs> <laughs> or at least uh, society as a whole. <laughs> so yeah, when the game starts out, Luke is uh, the young scion of uh, House Farb. Which is a noble house in the kingdom of Kimlaska. Seven years before, he was uh, kidnapped by persons unknown and he developed complete retrograde amnesia, even having to uh, relearn basic skills uh, like how to walk. And since then, he's been uh, forbidden to leave the walls of the manor until he comes of age. And uh, yeah, yeah, you get that sense r- early on that he's like very, ve- very sheltered.
1: Yeah, actually there was a uh like a little figurine of Lucian of Luke and Ash that was uh that they just revealed a few days ago. So we got into a conversation about it and realized the reason Luke has his ab window and he's totally ripped is that he has nowhere else to go all day, so he probably just does sit-ups. Oh yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> you know, what he spent he spends most of his days learning uh sword swordsmanship from his mentor uh von Grantz. Yeah. Uh, hanging out with his manservant and best friend, Guy, and also being harassed by his childhood friend, Natalia Luzu Kimlaska Kim Lanvildir, the princess of Kimlaska. We spoke about her again. A lot of this kind of comes off as just, oh, women, right? they all <laughs> pre-ironly, at least early on.
1: Yeah, it's not the best.
0: No. <laughs> However, Luke's kind of comfortable, but very cloistered life is totally torn apart when a mysterious phonist named Tyr Grants infiltrates his manor and attempts to assassinate Van. He tries to defend his master, but a strange power resonates between Luke and Tyr, and they're teleported halfway across the world. To get there, Tyr explains that she did not realize that Luke was a uh, seventh phonist like herself. Luke, at first, is really excited about his uh, newfound freedom, but once he just realizes what it's like to be out in the wilderness with uh, with scary monsters and uh, nowhere to sleep, he wants to return home pretty quickly. As a person uh, responsible for the predicament, Tier agrees to accompany him. They discover that they've landed in Malkuth, which uh, currently has high political tensions with Kimlaska Lamvaldare. On their journey back, Luke unwittingly gains the year-long servitude of a Cheegle named Mew, who immediately starts to annoy him. It's, it's that Tails character, which is yes. the like, annoying, cute like mascot character.
1: Yes, there's the dichotomy of Luke who can't stand him and Tyr who really loves him because he's cute.
0: Yeah, exactly. And he
1: squeaks does his little says his name whenever you shoot a fireball with him because that's a thing you do with him.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's a really funny, just random battle mechanic. They're they're arrested by Jade Curtis, a phonist known as the Necromancer, and a colonel in Malco's army and also the second-in-command, a phone master guardian, Anis Tatlin. They've been ordered to accompany Ion, the phone master of the Order of Lorelei, to uh, Kimlaska with a letter of peace. As Luke is a Kimlaskan noble, and they're headed in the same direction, Jade and Anise agree to accompany him. And uh, so at this point, they get on a really cool, really badass, like, 80s anime-style, like, (laughs) warship. I love this part. But you don't get to spend too much time on it, because it's attacked by the six god generals of the Oracle Knights, who are intent on retrieving Phone Master Ion in the name of uh, Grand Maestro Moe's.
1: Yeah. There's not as... (laughs) as opposed to Grand Maestro Curly's or Larry's. (laughs) And what the group discovers is that the God Generals are forcing Ion to unlock phonic seals all across the world. And they learn more about a phonic technique called replication, which can create a perfect copy of anything. There's two things I really like in this sequence. One is that Jade starts at level 40 or something and then gets his power sealed away, which is just like an excuse Or why this dude who has years of combat experience is tagging along with this idiot baby and inexperienced people. And the second is that the first time Luke has to kill an actual human being, he freaks out over it. And he keeps doing that throughout the game. But it's, yeah, that makes sense.
0: Yeah, he's he's been a sheltered dude.
1: He just has to stab a guy to death. Yeah. And, you know, that never really comes up in any other game in the series, but just this once they were able to think about it. So the group eventually makes it back to Kimlaska, reuniting with Van along the way. But while traveling, Luke experiences multiple like crippling headaches. And so when you meet up with Van, he takes Luke aside and reveals that those headaches are a sign he can control hyper-resonance, a power that can allow him to become a legendary hero. And he also tells Luke that Kimlaska plans to use his hyper-resonance as a weapon. And he offers to rescue him from his life of confinement. And Luke is all in favor of that immediately. So Luke and the rest of the gang are sent by Duke Fabra to aid the mining town of Axarioth, which is overrun with a poisonous miasma. And Natalia comes along here, too, because she eavesdrops on Luke's conversation with Vaughn and is blackmailing him so she can come along. So Luke then proceeds to alienate everyone else with his real selfish, single-minded behavior. He's just totally into his believing he's a legendary hero mode.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's gone from being like a, like, cloistered noble who is shithead to now believing he's like the chosen one and being a (laughs) shithead because of that.
1: A different kind of shithead. Yeah. At Axarioth, Van leads Luke deep below the city to the mighty structure known as a Sephiroth. Van uses like post-hypnotic suggestion on Luke to force him to use his hyper resonance and destroy the Sephiroth, which makes Axarioth sink into the ground and be totally destroyed. Uh, Luke is only saved by the intervention of Tyr. Her uses her phonic hymns to form a barrier that takes them safely underground. So Luke argues he's not at fault for the destruction of Axarioth, but everyone else turns their backs on him.
0: The group discovers an entire underworld beneath the planet's surface known as Klipoth, which is a deadly sea of miasma. The world they know is actually being held aloft by the poisonous miasma of the Sephiroth. Tier also reveals that she was born in the uh, Klipoth, in a place called uh, Yulia City. Luke's comatose at this point from uh, his use of his hyper-resonance, and uh, it's uh, then revealed that he's a replica of the god General Ash, who was created as a decoy to cover up Van's kidnapping of the real Luke Von Fob. Ash was too strong-willed to be brainwashed by Van and instead became a double agent. Despite this, he hates Luke for usurping his life and uh, becoming too narrow-minded and uh, weak-willed against uh, Van's plot. And the group decides to abandon Luke to join Ash in chasing after Van, but Tyr stays behind. And when Luke regains consciousness, uh, this is where we finally get a change of heart in him, and he vows to change himself for the better. And you'll see like uh, in a lot of like uh, self-help blog posts, he uh, cuts his long hair off to uh, signify his commitment to a life change.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the mid-game haircut, the Giant Bomb concept page. There's 24 games in here. This is one of them. <laughs> oh, this is a little bit of a cliche, but I don't know. I also don't remember. I don't remember Radiant Dawn doing that. Anyway.
0: Yeah, it's been a while since I put a lot of time into Radiant Dawn. Yeah,
1: this one stands out more to me than the other ones. Yeah. <laughs> There's like a whole scene. And if you're replaying and you have a different costume on Moriarty has the short hair, they just have to say, oh, he was wearing a wig he had to take off to cut his hair.
0: It's really funny, actually, because my daughter recently got a book of uh, Daniel Tiger stories. Ooh. And there's a story specifically about how getting your hairstyle changed doesn't change you as a person. Mm. And I'm only really bringing that up or thinking about it because I've read that story to her about five times in the past <laughs> three days.
1: He's signifying his commitment to becoming less of a jerk.
0: Yeah, yeah, it works.
1: Yeah, so the group discovers that Van, who knows the score, actually predicts the destruction of the world instead of prosperity. And he's understandably disgusted by the world's submission to that plans to use illegal replication techniques to create a replica of the entire world and everyone in it. Because he he theorizes that replicas fall outside the control of the score, so by replicating everything, humankind will finally be free. But his plan requires the original world to be destroyed to make space for the replica. He uses a planetary storm to amass enough 7 phonons to power his replication machines, which also has the effect of creating powerful earthquakes that will destroy the outer world which, for him, kills two birds with one stone. Luke and Tyr reunite with the others and save the world by finding a way to lower the floating continents of the world gently. So you spend a lot of the game cruising around in an airship, going to the different places, and setting all of this up. You defeat all six god generals, who, they're all sympathetic to Van's plan for their own reasons, and you confront Van at the Absorption Gate. So even though Van dismisses Luke as a weak replica... He's beaten in combat, and he throws himself off the ledge into the heart of the planet.
0: Is Van a uh, transhumanist?
1: Probably. It seems like he would be.
0: Yeah, it's, it's similar in, the, in idea. Just... This
1: is like the standard Tales fake ending part of the way through the game. The only mm-hmm. difference being that the villain is the actual villain instead of some other guy.
0: Or there being some like weird oh one of your party members was actually a in on some conspiracy, but
1: Anis is like in on some conspiracy a few times I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we haven't gotten to that yet, but yeah. you do have your standard traitor who just is still on your side anyway. Because yeah, again, every Tales party. game has that. Yep. <laughs> So I think yeah, this, the funniest because Alvin does it too, like literally multiple times. Oh yeah,
0: you know, we're just like no, yeah. it's fine.
1: Come on, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, it's totally totally fine. I was playing a little bit of uh tales of tales of Berseria the other night, and I hit a scene that was that exact thing, where it was like, oh, it turns out our one of our party members has been uh, spying on us the entire time, and I'm like ninety percent through the game. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, I still had to play that one. I'm pretty it's sure good. I, it. it's a I. Good,
0: it's a good one. Nothing
1: but good things, and I played like I've played Hearts. I've played Zesteria. Surely I can play one that people think is actually good.
0: Yeah, no, it's definitely it's better than Zesteria. It's better than Hearts. Absolutely, I would say it's one of the best of the modern HD ones. Not to get too off track, but it definitely has a more like nuanced and human story, similar to this game than a lot of the other tales games oh that definitely sounds good as in the sense that there are real like emotional stakes for the characters and not just banter and some kind of world-ending threat but yeah after getting back to abyss several months later luke's still struggling with his nature as a replica believing that he has no right to usurp what's rightfully ash's place in the world He's spurred into action by the reappearance of the God Generals, revealing that Van is actually still alive and continuing his plan to destroy the world. Worse still, uh, Van is assimilated Lorelei, who is a powerful being said to be the personification of the seventh phonon into himself, granting him incredible power and causing the poisonous miasma to leak through the world. Ion's killed by Moe's by making him read the planetary score after Anise betrays the group, having been blackmailed by Moe's into acting as a spy. Basically, Moe's blind faith in the prosperity promised by the score uh, led to him aligning with Van. So, Dis places a phonic glyph on Moe's at his request in order to control the seventh phonon, and become the new phone master. However, his body is also transformed into that of a grotesque monster. And as time goes on, his body rejects the seventh phonon because Mose is not a true seventh phonist, which basically causes his mind to deteriorate and he starts losing it.
1: Yeah, there's like a new ion who gets created and all that stuff because they've just been cloning the same guy for a while. Mm-hmm. It's fun, like, when you're playing the game, The all the replica stuff makes sense, but trying to explain it in words, I think, is very difficult. Like, yeah. Oh, Ash is Luke. Yeah,
0: it's the kind of thing where if you're, like, following the story pretty well, you get the gist of it, which is enough.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not too complicated. It's just hard to explain. Yeah. So, anyway, yeah. <laughs> The group, understanding the difficult position Annas was in, forgives her, and they pursue Van to his stronghold, a replica of his destroyed hometown, which is now renamed Eldrunt. got Eldrunt and Aldrunt. It's a bit weird to keep track of these things. Mm-hmm. To free Lorelai from Van's grasp, they have searched for and retrieved two items gifted to them by Lorelai, the key of Lorelai, which is a sword that Ash gets, and the jewel of Lorelai, which Luke gets. With the willing sacrifice of the replicas that Van hoped to populate his new world, Luke and Ash use hyper-resonance to completely neutralize the miasma. But the strain of that causes Luke to develop a terminal condition, which he hides from everyone but Tyr and Jade. The group fights the remainder of the god generals after defeating Moe's at the radiation gate in his giant monster form. And when you get deep inside, Luke and Ash are separated from the rest of the group and... They realize they're in a room that is built such that only one of them can escape and they have to fight to determine who should proceed and fight Vaughn, but also to settle their own uh, internal conflict and establish themselves as individuals and all that good character stuff. And obviously Luke is victorious because you're playing as him and Ash gives him the key of Lorelai. Luke is on his way to confront Van. Ash truly accepts himself as Luke von Fab and dies while holding off a wave of replica soldiers. The group finally confronts Van at the heart of Eldrant. Through battle, they force him to draw on more of Lorelei's power, which causes him to lose control of the being in the process. Then, with the aid of a phonic hymn passed down by Yulia, Luke defeats Van and uses the completed key of Lorelei to free Lorelei. The impact of the release causes the destruction of Eldrin because what good final boss fortress doesn't break? And Luke is cast down to the earth alongside Ash's body. And we cut to two years later, when Tyr and the other group members are commemorating Luke and Ash's sacrifice at the site of Eldrin's fall. Then, just as they're about to leave, a mysterious figure walks through the flowers towards them. It was supposedly an amalgamation of Luke and Ash. Honestly, I don't know if I picked up on that the first time I played, but that is the idea.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit of a uh, ambiguous way to end things.
1: That's cool, though. a bit of ambiguity in ending.
0: Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah, it's interesting because while you're playing the game, yeah, you know, it's a decently long game, and there feels like there's a lot going on. There's a lot of story, but when, you know, you really boil it down as we have here, simple isn't quite the right word for it, but it follows a very like direct kind of arc from one place to another.
1: For sure. I think a lot of the good details are just in the relationship between all these characters. Because like yeah. all of the God generals get their own character development. They all have a good reason for what they're doing and, They interact in a cool way with at least one of your party members. They've all got stuff going on. The overall experience is a lot greater than just a basic summary.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What are your thoughts on the game in general?
1: I really like it. I should actually replay it again more recently sometime because I've got a pretty good memory, but I haven't played it that recently but then again i also have a lot of other stuff i should play yeah that. but just you know a lot of the times when i play one of these games i feel like yeah but abyss did it better
0: right yeah i think one of the things that it has going for it is that it has a really engaging story that can be confusing at times but it's paced incredibly well you feel like you're always going from one cliffhanger to the next and the characters are remarkably like well developed and have really interesting relationships with one another and the development of luke throughout the game is i would really like to see more jrpgs do this because it's real character development (laughs)
1: Yeah, and character interactions are, I think, what Tales really focuses on and excels at. But even then, they're usually anime archetypes. There's like Mm -hmm. a couple of things, and you still see all of those traits here. Guy has a uh, phobia. He's afraid of women, which is like a goof, but then it's because of a specific instance of trauma in his past, which like, oh, yeah, they do that every single one of these games. Oh, yeah. But... Still, it's just handled better in this game, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. You can find the uh, Tales archetypes in all of the protagonists. But yeah. despite that, I don't know, they just feel a little more developed. And what you do get in a lot of Tales games is enjoyable and engaging characters. But there's not a whole lot of like pathos or real character development there. And a lot of the interactions is just, oh, these kind of like jokey like interactions and whatnot. When they're not saving the world, they're just like razzing each other or having cute little side conversations.
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. That's what I, I like to see.
0: I would say that I would highly recommend playing it if you can get your hands on it.
1: Yeah, totally. It's not the easiest one to get a hold of, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, it's not. The 3DS version came out only in cartridge form, so you can't get it from the eShop. And uh, I think the PS2 one is pretty pricey. And, And the 3DS one is pretty pricey at this point on eBay which is a shame. There are other ways to play it, of course. Uh, but I definitely think it shows its age in certain ways. When I go back to one of these older, like mid to late 2000s Tales games, I really do miss the like full range of movement and combat that you get in the HD games.
1: Yeah, for sure. They've kept iterating on that. and They've made it even better over time
0: mm-hmm yeah it just feels the combat in the games from this era is definitely really engaging and fun but it just feels a little simpler and like i said just button mashy without a lot of like controlling your battleground and whatnot that you get in the modern games and even though i think the story is paced really well i do think that some of the Kind of side tracks do you have to go on? And uh, there's a couple of just tedious fetch quest type things that are definitely a uh, sign of games from this era. I would say the story is well-paced. The gameplay isn't always as well-paced.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, this, this does have the best Namco Bandai-themed we're going to make references to our other games area because you can play a little Dragon Slayer mini game, so it's objectively the best one. And <laughs> listen to the um, Metro Cross music, also.
0: Oh, nice! But I would definitely highly recommend going back to it if you dig Tales games. You know, I picked up Tales of Vesperia not a while ago when it was remastered on Switch. And that game is really held in high regard, and it's a pretty good game, but it, as far as Tales game from that general era, I don't really think it holds a candle to, to Abyss.
1: Yeah, I thought the same thing, actually, while I was playing it. It looks nicer and has a lot of good things in it, though. Uh, yeah. But it's just, you know, I, I like the story in this one and the characters a bit better, and I know in Vesperia, I Just every time they made you do a solo fight, it was really hard.
0: Hmm. yeah yeah the battles are really it's di- a really, really kind of...
1: weird uh, difficulty balance
0: mm-hmm. yeah I totally agree and that's another one that I feel like that one takes even longer to like really get moving but yeah is there anything you'd like to add
1: no I can't think of anything right now I think I got through all of my thoughts on this
0: cool should we wrap up here I think we should. Okay, cool. Is there anything you'd like to have a plug or anything that you want people to uh, check out? Places they can find you on the internet?
1: Probably. You want to find me on the internet? I just have a Twitter account at Pewteriscuter. I'm sure Apollo will link that in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I just post dumb stuff and terrible jokes. <laughs>
0: That's what Twitter's for in, in the best of cases.
1: It is the best use of Twitter. Any, anything yeah. else is inferior. Yeah,
0: <laughs> totally. Totally. I think by the t- time this episode comes out, this will be relevant. We are starting a Patreon-exclusive show called The Anime Based on the Game. And so for five bucks a month on our Patreon, you can get access to a monthly show where we're going to be do covering anime, movies, books, OVAs, all kinds of stuff. And uh, yeah, so we've got a couple of ringers that we're starting out with. Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within, and uh, the new Monster Hunter movie. But what's relevant, particularly here, is that Robert is going to be in an episode on a uh, grand blue fantasy, the animation. And I know you're a big grand blue person and I yeah, know very I little about it. So I'm looking forward to learning. Yeah.
1: I wanted an excuse to watch the show that I don't think will be very good. And also to talk about actual grand blue stuff. That is good. I want to say I watched in the theater, final fantasy the spirits within the projector broke, We got a voucher to go see, you know, a movie, get a free ticket, which we used to watch uh, Final Fantasy the Spirits Within again. And to this day, I don't know why we made that decision.
0: (laughs) Yeah, when I saw it in the theater, I was both drunk and had taken a pain pill. (laughs) (laughs) I loved it. I thought it was phenomenal at the time because I was like high out of my mind. But uh, we'll see how it goes this time. I, I just watched a few minutes of the, the other day. I was like, oh, man. And, uh, yeah, there's going to be a lot of dunks in this series. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: should, be, should be a good time.
0: Um, definitely. But, yeah, to sign up for that, it's basically the $5 per month tier. And uh, you can go to patreon.com backslash studios And I'll have a link in the show notes yeah, other than that, thank you for listening. If you want to rate and review us on uh, Apple Podcasts and elsewhere, that would be awesome. Also check out Ten Marathon. We're finally doing uh, Nocturne pretty soon here, which will be a beast. It's taken <laughs> us about four or five years to <laughs> build up our will to do it. But uh, yeah, we're looking forward to that. So yeah, Megatev Marathon, the uh, Shin Megami Tensei and Persona podcast that I also co-host. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for listening. And thanks for being on again, Robert.
1: Yeah, uh, anytime, basically. This is always a lot of fun.